So we're so excited to kick off our summer book club with this amazing book, The First, The Few, The Only. When we interviewed Deepa for this episode, I remember being so excited to talk to her about this book because, and while we've talked about a lot of books written for white people to learn more about race and racism, and we even wrote one, it's not often that we come across business books that are written specifically for women of color. In fact, women of color still seem largely invisible in many ways in the workforce. But as you all should know now, we're absolutely not. So get ready to lean in, but maybe not in the way that you're actually used to hearing that phrase and reimagine what a truly inclusive workplace could and should look like from a perspective that you may not be hearing in your own. And if what you hear is something you'd like to dive deeper into, and we hope so, please pick up the book and read it for yourself. We would love to hear your thoughts once you do. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that models and normalizes conversations around race and racism so that we can help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. My name is Deepa Prashathaman, and I'm a former executive, I guess is the word that I use sometimes. I was a partner at Deloitte. I was there for over 20 years, and I left recently to start a company called Information, which creates community for women of color. And I wrote a book called The First, The Few, The Only, also about women of color in corporate America. And we will totally dive into the book in a second. But when you just said that, it reminded me of some social media posts that we had seen recently. And it was this reframing of the idea that you just said women of color. And even by using that phrase, by default, we're centering white women bucketing everyone else other than white women as others. So can we just level set on terminology a little bit? Like, how do we speak about all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's going to have very opinions on all this. And I just, you know, these are my thoughts. This is how I frame things. You know, when I first wrote the book, when I left corporate and to kind of get into the space and to write a book in particular, I was very anxious. I'll be honest with you. I was very anxious that I was, one, using the term women of color, because three years ago, when we were kind of early in the development stages of the book and kind of the proposal that word hadn't been landed on, right? There was a lot of different terms people were using. And for me, I have come to it after a lot of soul searching. So it's a term that I use because I think that there's power in it. So I don't see it as my only identity or the only identity that women see themselves by. I almost see that, and I talk about this in the book, that there's a hierarchy amongst labels. And that for me, woman of color is a label I use because I think there's a different experience for certain groups of women in the workplace, but, and there is something that's similar that happens to those groups that are not white women in the workplace. And so that's really what I am speaking to, but in all candor, there's constant discussion and these terms evolve and change and people have lots of feelings about them. So I'm a little more, you know, and even for information, like, again, it's a community for women of color, but we ask for self-identification. So it's like, if you see yourself as that, then you're welcome. And that, you know, it's kind of that sort of conversation. I'm not going to give you the label. You have to kind of see yourself as that. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that your book is written for women of color. Personally, my mom's Japanese immigrant. And so having lived in my youth as basically Asian and then marrying a white Canadian man and living in really white areas of the country, I've sort of come into my 40s embracing this biracial identity. And there were times when I was reading that I felt like almost teary because it felt like I was being seen in a book in a different way than I had with a lot of other books about how to belong in the workplace. So I really appreciated that from a personal level. Thank you. It's interesting. Like I don't tell the story in the book. I've told it on LinkedIn. But originally when I called myself a woman of color, I was told that I couldn't as an Indian woman, right? That term is not appropriate for an Indian woman. So again, I just think people have lots of different thoughts on it. And what I was really trying to do and 
even in the book, was really just raise the stories that we don't get to hear often, because I don't think everyone has a universal experience in the workplace. And I think there is this wrong message that if you just work hard, you know, everything will be okay, that especially corporate spaces are a meritocracy. My work is about showing that, you know, hard work only get you so far. There are other things that we need to understand if we're going to really help people thrive. I really appreciate that as well, because, you know, I Sarah and I have talked a lot about how we've seen our identity differently. And I've really always known and embraced like being biracial and have experienced when I was reading your book, I was like, oh, I've experienced so many similar situations to you and others because I come from big law and like a lot of years as a litigator in that world and being in that world as an Asian woman. So I also really felt seen and validated because I've never read a book that was written for me in this way. And We chatted a little bit about this right before we started recording, but I would love to hear you talk about how this book is different from ones written for, you know, white women sort of talking about the different experience of women of color. Yeah, I mean, I, well, first of all, I interviewed 500 women of color in writing the book. And so it is filled with stories. I tried, most books traditionally have, you know, a story per per chapter where they'll go deep. And I, if you'll see, because you both read it, the book has lots of like little snippets, more, I would call them vignettes than full deep dives on women. Because I wanted to show that women of color have such varied experiences. To your point, it's not like, you know, there's not one small group that it applies to. We're such a big group. And so I really wanted to show that our experiences were varied. And so that's why there's so many. But I think what's different is the book is full of stories. And we're talking about them more now than when I initially started writing the book. But those weren't stories and things we talked about. I think most of us have been taught, again, just keep your head down, do good work, everything will be okay. And these things that you're feeling, yeah, maybe they're there, but for the most part, just push through, right? And part of my work is about telling people, like the three of us, that just pushing through is causing harm to us, right? The women I interviewed, the most like alarming stat, and it's it, I just did a piece on this for MIT Sloan, is that so many of the women I interviewed were sick, like physically sick with manifestations of stress. And so I think part of what I wanted to show in the book is like, you know, you're not making this up. You are not alone. There is a universal experience that many of us are having at work that we've never kind of been encouraged. I call it permission. The book had permission to talk about, and it's okay to talk about it. And actually it's not showing your weakness, showing, you know, that you can't hack it. It's not, it's not a negative. We actually need to tell those stories to kind of get to get to the other side. I love that. And as you were talking, I was thinking like, wow, I really wish I had this book before I graduated from law school. (laughs) I just went in head down, you know, being told I just work because, you know, you work hard, you get rewarded. And that path was not the same for me as it was for other people. And one of the things that I think about when I think about my experience in big law is code switching, right? And the role and how difficult and how draining, you know, you're talking about stress and how trying to manage that code switching happens, right, on a very specific level. Well, and I came, I would be in very Asian communities, and then I'd come into like a very white male work, you know, space and have to completely sort of reinvent yourself. And obviously, the mental juggle, right, when you're trying to keep your head down and work hard, there's so many layers there. But I would love, Deepa, if we could discuss for white women who may not understand what this is, right? What is that toll that you go through? And are there ways that white women can better understand this in the context of their own lives? Yeah. And I first want to say that I think everyone code switches by some form or fashion. Whenever I talk about code switching, I end up with inevitably the white man responding to one of my posts saying, I code switch too, right? Like I don't talk how I talk at home at work. So I think we all adjust to the 
norms and the behaviors around us. I think what's different for women of color is that we are expected to code switch more. And I think, again, I think women code switch in the workplace. Absolutely. There's a lot of male norms that we're expected to adhere to, you know, sometimes how we talk, I mean, even shaking hands, like my girlfriends and I don't shake hands, but that is the norm in corporate America or in in workspaces, because that's kind of, I think what men do. Right. And so that's an example where I think there is, that's true for everybody. But there's something I think different happening for women of color that is deeper. It's almost like another layer of code switching, right? And I'm not saying it's just for women of color. There's layers of code switching for different groups. But again, my work is on women of color is just understanding and unpacking that, right? So sometimes the story I will tell, and it's the most, I have to come up with a word that I like. It's like the most shocking. The hardest story in the book is a woman from the Midwest. Her name is Ronnie. And she knew when she joined her company, she was the you know only Black woman in her department. She came to find out six months in, she was the only Black woman, Black person in the company. And 40 minutes into one of our early conversations, she started crying because she said, I moved my family here, right? I have Black children and they're in school and like they're having the same experience I'm about to tell you about. But she said, you know, I change what I eat, how I wear my hair, what I talk about, the pictures I put up in my office, what I share from my weekend, right? Because my experience is what I do on the weekend and what we are different than my colleagues. And I do a lot to kind of fit in and The reason for the tears was she didn't realize how much she was doing it. And then she said, you know, what people don't understand and what you're asking me to think about right now is I am the only black person some of my white colleagues have ever met. And as a result of that, I try to make sure they have a good, she did air quotes, a good experience with all black people. And that had nothing to do with her job, right? The word language I use in the book is the job and the job, like this whole other layer of activities that we take on. And she didn't even know she was taking that on, right? That she was just doing that because she thought that's what she had to do without realizing the toll it had on her. So it's almost like these extra layers, these things that we have to do, the ways we have to represent, the things we mute, but also the things we're, you know, forced to step into and talk about that, you know, our white women colleagues don't have to. So I think it's almost like a barometer of code switching. So I'm not saying not everybody does it. I think we do it in form, you know, small ways. But for women of color, the amount we do is, you know, off the charts, if I can use that language. And almost to the point that it really takes a different toll. And so many of the women of color I work with don't even know that there's a choice in doing it. I think that's the part that's really fascinating. Speaking of that extra burden and then making the choice to lay them down, I think in the book, you talk about these five archetypes of how women of color show up in the workplace. And and you really explicitly say like, these are extra burdens. It's okay to lay them down. Can we talk in the hopes that maybe white people in the workplace, people who are colleagues to women of color can listen to this and have an understanding of how they can maybe better support their colleagues in the workplace? Sort of what are the five archetypes that you've identified and how can people do better? Yeah. So I'll just start with one of the first ones is a balloon popper. So it's someone who you know constantly is expected to kind of come into a room and say what's not been said, right? So You know, one of the examples in the book is where a woman was working in a large media company and they were, the group had decided that they wanted to tell more black stories. And what she found is all those assignments were going to the white men, you know, directors and filmmakers. And she's like, at some point she felt it necessary to say, does it make sense that all of those stories about, you know, are these black, amazing men in particular are being told and being directed. And, you know, that is the team that we're putting against them. Like, isn't this an opportunity maybe to do something different? There was flack for her saying that, yet she felt like she had to carry that. She had to do that as the person, you know, that was the only person of color, the only voice of color in the room. So it's an example of constantly speaking up and having to say something. You know, other one is the sage, right? So this person, and, and you know, this is a, a week to talk about it, 
But anytime there is a police shooting or something happens with the police, like a lot of the black women I speak with will say that everybody in the office will go to them and ask them questions and they just have to hold space, right? And it's expected of them because there's no one else in the office to answer these questions. But that is not always an assumed role. That is not really, you know, a chosen role. You know, another example is that a lot of women become beacons. So these are women where there's no other women of color, no other people in the organization. So when I interview men, white men will usually say I mentor 12 people. When I interview white women, they'll say I mentor 20 people. When I interview women of color, it is often, not just like once or twice, often that they'll say I mentor 100, 200 people because there's no one else in the company or no one else in the industry. Right. So there's these just examples of things that happen and roles we take on that we don't fully understand because we just have had to do them our whole life or there's just an expectation around that. I think what I find really unique or different for a lot of the women of color is we have an innate sense of responsibility because we are the first kind of breaking down barriers or, you know, we are feeling like we're not just carrying ourselves, but we're representing our race, which is another role I talk about, which is similar to what, you know, the story I told about the Midwestern woman that where there's just these things we step into that are not part of the job description, yet we take them on because we feel we have to. Yes, absolutely. You know, in terms of how the other part, I mean, there are a lot of parts that I appreciated, but about the book was this idea of shifting, like, let's get rid of, like, let's identify that there's an old game and then there's a new way we can look at power. And I want to really talk a little bit more about those solutions, like the new rules of power. For those who haven't read the book yet, like this old game, basically, it's this idea of like, it's scarce. Power is scarce. We're competitive. The winner takes it all. Kill or be killed. Right. And I think we can all relate to that because I think that was what corporate America really has been built on so far. But you mentioned in your book that these rules are changing, right? It's there's like the power over, the power within, the power to, and the power with. That sounds really hard to understand when I just say that. I'll rattle it off really quickly. But this reality that we all have the power to make change for the better. And so what is the most important thing we can do to help create change and change the system that we're operating in? Yeah. So my whole conversation and focus around power comes from the fact that so I'm a researcher, right? I'm a professor on the side. I do a lot of things where I involve that involve deep research. So the more and more I met with women early on, and this was women of color and white women, I would ask them questions about power and they would look down or they would sit back in their chair. They would like fidget. They were so uncomfortable with this idea of power. And I started to unpack like what's happening. And I think it's worse for women of color because they will say we of all the groups have been the most exploited in the game of power. But I think most women have this really uncomfortable relationship with power because we've been taught by about 12 books, right? Machiavelli's Prince, right? 48 rules. Like this, It's like this very small list of books that have taught us what power looks like. And power is top down. It's used to exploit. It is very sort of competitive. It's a very specific archetype. And most women don't want that archetype. And I want to take a pause here because what's been interesting with the book launch is I wrote the book for women of color. It's actually been more allies, white women, but mostly white men who picked up the book and said, I have women of color in my organization. I don't understand what's different for them. And I want to do better. I want to understand. And they'll say some of the themes actually relate to me. So I also think we're in a moment coming out of COVID you know, the great resignation, the quiet quitting, where I think everyone is saying work doesn't work at all. Yes, it doesn't work for women of color, but it doesn't work for anybody. And my work is really about showing if we can make it work for women of color, especially for black women, then it's going to work for more people. So it's kind of this idea of like, I'm not saying it's great and rosy for anybody. I think we're in a moment where it needs to be redesigned. But the idea of remaking power is like, we get to define what power looks like. And so 
I interviewed this lobbyist and she said to me, have you ever watched a movie where like it's in olden days and there's a king and the king dies and you know, everyone in the moment will say, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. It's in that moment that we give power to the new structure. And I think that's how I started to think about power, that we have the ability to remake power. It's not working for women. It's not working for many groups. Let's remake it. And so what I started to talk about is just starting with four ideas. And these four in particular were things I, I found that were out in the zeitgeist. Other people were writing about them. So these ideas are not unique, but how I talk about them are unique. But it's this idea that power can be used for good. Power can be collective. It can be used for all. When I would sit with the women and I'd say, okay, that's great. I know you don't like power. What would you want power to be like? Like, how do you want to work with people? They would talk about community and power for good. I also think we don't talk enough about how the power you have inside, like how you see yourself and your internal power, I think for women is the most important power we can have. And we don't talk about that enough. We put so much value in what other people think of us and our center of power goes outside. And it's really about what matters to us. And then finally, the, maybe the things that we value, like the things that we look at and we say are really important in the people around us are not the things that we should be valuing. So I interviewed Stacey Brown-Philpott. She used to be the CEO of TaskRabbit. And the week I interviewed her, she had gotten, her family gotten a puppy. Puppy was named Fifi. She didn't want the puppy at all. And she said, you know, this puppy follows me around and I'm fascinated because I'm the last one in the family that wanted it. And she said, it's, I think it's because I set boundaries, but I'm also open, like approachable. And we started talking about leadership and maybe power as we've kind of constructed it historically, especially in workplaces where it's, you know, top down and hierarchical and telling people what to do. That's old power. Maybe new power is really about making people feel safe. Like that puppy felt so safe, even though, you know, Stacy was at least excited about it. She was setting boundaries and approachable. And really that what we're talking about in the new kind of leadership and the new kind of power is psychological safety and making people feel like they can be their best selves at the workplace. And so that's a, like a, you know, a 20 minute, you know, conversation distilled into like 30 seconds. So no, I think this is so great because I think you've, the way that you're talking about it, right, really as I am listening to you resonates because I feel like there is such a complex relationship with power, especially for women and for women of color. And I think about how I talk to my own kids about power and, you know, are you going to use your power for good is a lot of what I say to my eight-year-old. But so I dovetailing off of that, when you're talking about, you know, how women are looking for community and like how that vision of power is very different than sort of the traditional systems of power that we've been raised with, do you think it's then possible to sort of change the systems of power in corporations? Or is it more of just like, a let's just blow it all up and start over and start new companies and rework, reimagine industries completely with this new definition of power to start that will you know, eventually replace whatever definition of power we were told was the right one, right? And kind of along those lines, how does this play then into women, you know, wanting different things in leadership than men, right? Like less likely to want that CEO role, more likely to want to be in community and work on collective solutions, for example. Yeah, I mean, again, another like an hour long conversation. I think that all of that is changing. I think that, you know, where I start with is that so much of this is based on what we are taught, right? What we are taught to crave, what we are taught to want. And I think that for a lot of women, and I believe the system teaches this purposely because it takes power away from us. We were taught that it's an individual path, that you have to do it on your own. And I think that there is a game of isolation happening with that, that then sets women up to be right in these situations that are not serving them. And I think that's what you saw with the pandemic. That's what my friend Reshma Sajwani talks a lot about with the Marshall Plan for Moms, right? 
this idea that it's kind of how power is taken from moms in particular. But I think the same thing is true for women and women of color. So I think there's messages that we have to do this on our own, that we have to, you know, kind of keep our head down and we work harder again and do more and outperform and out elbow will be great. And part of what I think in my work is so focused on is no, I think that's actually the wrong lesson. I think the way to, to play the game is to do the collective, is to do this differently, is to share power, is to really talk about it, is to pool our resources in a very different way. My business partner, Ron, and I did a TED talk where we talked about the broke ass chair. And it's this idea that I think most of us have been taught there are limited seats at the table, right? For everybody. There may be one seat for a woman, right? In the last couple of years, we believe on a board, right? We need to have one woman, right? It's kind of the default. I'm not saying that's true or right, but that's kind of the default. Most of those seats, by the way, favor, if you look at all the research, all the interventions have favored white women, like the seats are hardly going to women of color. And when we started talking to our women of color, they said, well, the one that's designated for a woman of color, it's a broke ass chair. So it's not even a full seat. It's like, doesn't have full voting, right? Doesn't have full voice. And I think that's the problem. When you ask men, they think all 12 seats are available to them. When you ask women, they're like, maybe two or three, but who told us that? Where does that come from? So I think so much of this is the indoctrination, is the training or the messages and the stories that we get early on in life about what's possible. And I think we've been taught to, again, that this is a game of, of doing this on your own. And so much of this would be better fought and change if we could do it together. I would say the final answer is yes, it's possible to change things. I think we need both. I used to think that well, let's just take everything down. And I think I've evolved in my thinking. I think we need women to stay in corporate America and make that better. At the same time, we're building new organizations from scratch that show what is possible. But I think we need both because I don't think you can kind of remake an entire system, like, you know, fly a plane and remake it at the same time. I think we need both. And I do think it's possible. I just posted something last Monday that, you know, I told a story on LinkedIn when I, my book was coming out, a, a large company tried to sue me. And I got the notice on Friday afternoon where they said, if you don't do all these things and give us your manuscript and do, you know, these 10 things, we are going to sue you. On, we're going to do a cease and desist on Monday and your life is going to become miserable. I felt very out of powers. It's a very large company. And I sat with it on Saturday and it just happened to just kind of all be happening right after George Floyd's murder, because that's when I was writing my book. And I just ended up writing this really uncharacteristic note that you would write to a legal, a large legal you know, team where I said, you do what you need to do, but I don't think this is a time to tell a woman of color not to tell her story. And it was a very intentional, like, I'm not going to meet the system with that sort of aggressive legal, like that's a particular archetype again, and a particular way of like solving for problems. It doesn't work. And so I just kind of said, you do what you need to do, but I'm not going to engage in that process. They ended up apologizing and actually asked me to like sit down with them and help them understand what I was saying. Cause I questioned their leadership. I did a whole bunch of things in my note that were very non-corporate. Right. And that post like went viral. I've had almost 300,000 you know, views on it because I think people are looking for ways that you can change the system from within. I think we've been taught we can't. And my message is that we can, but you have to know how to do it. You have to realize it's going to be hard and you're a little bit swimming upstream. But if more of us do it, that's what I call the power of we in the book, like the power of me and the power of we, we can do it together. And this is where I think white women and women of color need to work together because I don't think women of color can change it on their own. I think we need women, but we also need men because the whole system is right created by them and supported by them. We need to do it together. Just to interrupt before you say that, it really reminded me of one of my quotes for the year, which is be like water. Water is soft, but water's its force is irresistible. Yes. And you just picture the force of the, like the water gushing down and breaking down the bridges and all of the things. And I think if we can all join together, as you say, that we culture, that idea of really reimagining this together, we could really make a big difference. 
I agree. I just think we've been taught we can't. And where did that come from, right? And I think you're starting to see more and more people opting out and doing different things. Like we've been told, right, if you keep your head down and do that big job, right, if it's a legal job, you're going to, you know, get to the good job and have the good life. But I think most of us who've gotten there are questioning, is this a life I even want? So I just think we're in this moment where we're redefining success and what's possible. And But in order to make change, we're all going to have to do it together. I love that and answer, right? Because I, I do believe as much as I ideally would like love to blow just a lot of stuff mm-hmm. up. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, right? Because there's so much power in that in different ways and reimagining. But there's also a lot to be said for creating, building within and at the same time, right? Creating something new. And so sort of dovetailing off that idea, because when I think about sort of that individual nature that we've been taught, right? You know, this is it's hard work that will get us there. I feel that that's so intricately tied to capitalism, right? And how our entire country has been built on this whole structure of, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is like one of my least favorite phrases. And, you know, we're in this alone, the person with the most money wins and all of that. And so when I'm thinking about and hearing you talk about, you know, the sort of the new organizations, the new collectives rebuilding from the inside, how does capitalism then, you know, play into that? How do we address that sort of overarching, again, problem that we've been taught really early on that money is what makes the world go round, right? And all of those other sort of things. Yeah, you know, I sometimes laugh, you know, I don't think I intentionally did this, but in some ways, my book is really a critique of capitalism. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what it's about. I mean, I'm an economist by training. So I guess that makes sense in some unconscious way. There's a woman I interviewed who said, you know, and I had to get really educated on this, just the whole idea of like how the challenges around race are like so integrated into our concept of capitalism. I knew that at a high level, but sitting with her and really hearing how and where. And so I think, yeah, we have built a lot of our beliefs, a lot of our institutions on the backs of enslaved people and, you know, indi- you know, taking land from indigenous people and all these other, you know, ideas. And it, we just have kept going, right? And said, you know, well, that was then and now is now. And, you know, again, if you work hard, you make a lot of money and it'll, it'll, everyone will be okay. And it doesn't work that way. And so those are what, those are those spaces where it's really hard to figure out how do you rebuild without acknowledging and understanding and that everyone, it's not pull yourself up from your boost ups because we all don't have the same entry point, right? Or the same experiences. And so I think it's really complicated there. And so, yes, a lot of the work is a critique of capitalism and the, the values and the things that we're chasing, I think put us at odds at our uh, with our humanity and the things that are truly important to like have for everyone to live healthily and happily. And so Again, I think we're in this moment where coming out of COVID, a lot of people are questioning that, right? The next generation coming up behind us is really questioning that. So some of that I just think is part of the sea change, but those are the parts of the institutions that I think are most difficult to dismantle. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't think people necessarily, I think there's a lot of allergy to the word socialism, right? And then is there another model out there that we can even think and consider that some mix of all of these things that we can perhaps help shape and create a new one coming out of this era, basically? Is there anything else that we didn't yet ask that you think is important for our audience to know? I think for this audience, maybe just the conversation around the queen bee and maybe what happens in the workplace. You know, I will share something that I've not even written about, but we are going to write about. And it's not my idea. My friend Noni raised it with me. So we often, she's a Latina woman. We often talk about some of the challenges between white women and women of color at work, right? And how I think a lot of white women of color feel like white women were their biggest obstacles in their careers. They will say it's not white men. It's actually white women. 
So I think it goes back to that idea of the chairs and that there's only one seat for any woman. And so, you know, if anyone's going to get it, like white, white women have, they've been in, in a challenging situation for so long, it's been their time. And I think a lot of the white women I speak to, sometimes if they're honest with me, will say they feel like they're being leaped over as women of color take their seats, right? Like where was their time? Because it wasn't long enough for them to truly get their seats. But Noni, my friend said, I want to write an article on Lucy and Ethel how, you know, I think that there is a story to be told that I think in the workplace, we can all be friends as long as a white woman is in charge. But as soon as the woman of color is the one in the power seat, the Lucy and Ethel dynamic doesn't work anymore. So we're still unpacking and talking about that a lot. But I, you know, I think that there is in my book, in particular, I talk a lot about the queen bee idea. And there's a lot of academic research that suggests once a woman gets to the top, she tends to feel like any other woman is competition. I think that a lot of the women of color I interview and work with feel very strongly that it's white women that have been the most difficult. And so just really being cognizant of that, being understanding of that, realizing it's not just that we have to actively make space for each other, right? And really think about that. We did research with Billie Jean King last year. That's kind of one of the TED Talks that came out. And 91% of the white women we interviewed said they wanted to support and mentor women of color. And only 9% were. There's such a disconnect. And I don't think it's because they're bad people. I think it's everyone's you know, struggling in the workplace. But the difference between intention and doing is quite large, I think. And I think there is a big growing, you know, soon to erupt tension between white women and women of color in the workplace that we really need to unpack and talk about. It that is super powerful. And I hope everyone takes that to heart. Thank you very much for sharing this time. If you want people to find you, where is the best place for them to find and follow and engage with your material? I would say LinkedIn is where I'm most active and vocal. So under Deepa Peru, but also my website. So Deepa Peru, P-U-R-U.com. And I put everything there around speaking and where I'm going. And so that would probably be the best. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 